This is Murder, She Sang. I'm Andrea Peterson. Welcome to episode two of season one of Murder, She Sang. Today we're going to be talking about Laura Foster again. If you haven't listened to episode one yet, go back and do that. Also, listen to the live show just because I really enjoyed making it and I want more people to hear it because it was fun for me. Uh, That is also in the SoundCloud for Mid-Mountain in the playlist that is, well, Murder, She Sang. (laughs) Uh, And wherever else this is later being distributed through. Episode one and the live show give you a lot of sort of the general background about what murder ballads are and where they come from and why I think it's important that we talk about them. So I think you should go listen to them and then talk about them with other people. Uh, But now I'm going to talk more about Laura Foster. I want to make it clear that for the purposes of this podcast, Laura Foster is the most important person in this story, and she's the person I'm going to talk the most about. Laura Foster is a young woman in Appalachia, in North Carolina specifically, Uh, actually didn't live in Wilkes County, which is where a lot of the mythology around this happens, and also where there's a bunch of like tourism related to the song. Uh, the song obviously being Tom Dooley, the folk song that took Laura Foster's death and immortalized it while erasing her name. At least the most popular version, the Kingston Trio release from 1958. But almost a century before that, Laura Foster was a woman who was murdered. She was, according to court testimony at the time, 22, although it's a little unclear her exact age due to some census records uh, that we're going to talk about in a little while. Actually, let's talk about them now. Uh, Laura Foster shows up in Caldwell County, which is a neighboring county in North Carolina, in two censuses, the 1850 and the 1860. But... The two ages that that you have from those two censuses are five and then 17, which is not 10 years difference if you want to do the basic math. Uh, But during the court testimony, her father, Wilson Foster, testifies that Laura was 22 when she was killed. So that's the age that we're going to run with here. Uh, And the fact that there was some confusion about what Laura's age was says a lot about the world and society and culture that she lived in. Um, There was varying levels of literacy. Uh, Not everyone had regular access to things like calendars. Uh, So actually there is a huge discrepancy throughout the entire thing about when Laura was actually killed, like monuments and memorials have differing dates on them about when she died. We're going to stick with that she died in or around May 25th, 1866, which is what I think is best supported by the court testimony in court records that are available. There are actually like a really huge amount of court records available, which is really great. Um, 
through ooh, uh, the North Carolina State Library. I think I will probably double check, but even if I'm saying that wrong, know that I will have a link off to the archive on our website, which is murdershesang.com, because that website was available, which I'm still surprised about and still just oh so pleased. Um, so check them out. They are really hard to read um, because it is all cursive. I'm one of those people who went to school and still had to learn how to do cursive, but now my handwriting is pretty atrocious. Uh, also, my printing is not great. I do a lot of typing uh, in my real life, non-talking to the internet about murderer's job. I'm a technology reporter and I've been like screwing around on the internet for a really long time, so it's almost surprising that it took me this long to try and do a podcast. <laughs> uh, but that's neither here nor there. Uh, here nor there is we're going back to Laura. <laughs> and Laura Foster really didn't leave that much behind. We don't have any photos of her, but what we do have is mostly information about her death. We have court records, as I mentioned, that are archived and available online. We have newspaper clippings about the trial uh, that were published for as far away as the New York Herald. Uh, and we have those census records that show Laura living in Caldwell County with her father, Wilson, mother, who also has a weird age discrepancy, and it's not entirely clear to me from the census records that they're the same person, but is either like Patsy or Martha, which it sounds like one of Patsy was maybe a nickname for Martha, unclear, but who goes from like 30 to 48, or maybe it is a an extended cousin that moves in. Um, but we also know that her mother her court testimony from her father, Wilson, her mother died before the time of Laura's murder. Uh, and that court testimony you can find uh, uh, online in this really hard to read penmanship. Uh, but you can also, if you are so inclined, seek out a copy of a book called the Ballad of Tom Dula, the documented story behind the murder of Laura Foster and the trials and execution of Tom Dula by John Foster West, which has transcriptions of the court documents, which are much easier to read. Uh, you can find copies of it used online, or you can do what I did, which is head up, find it at your library through an interlibrary loan own or visiting the Library of Congress. Uh, I actually did that latter option because uh, I live in Washington DC and as it turns out you can just get a reader card and show up to the Library of Congress and they will let you touch their books. It's pretty cool. You should do it. Uh, do not miss while you are there. If you get a reader card, you can also go into the old reading room, the main reading room at the Library of Congress, which you can otherwise like peek into from the like visitor area. But if you go in and get a reader card, which is free, it takes like two seconds. They take a little picture of you. You get a nice little laminated card. It's great. Go get one and read all of the things. Uh, but takes like almost no time, although it's kind of hard to find. You have to go like down into the basement and 
there's just there's a lot of machinations involved. Uh, ask someone for directions, but go there, use it as a research uh, resource, and also use the Library of Congress's online stuff because they are, have a bunch of really cool things related to Tom Dula as well. Uh, that's a great place to get a lot of the newspaper records, which I'm going to be referencing in this episode and others. I encourage you to go find them uh, on the website linked again, murdershesang.com. If I had sponsors, this is where I'd plug something probably. Just kidding. We're a very DIY audio zine here. Thank you very much. Actually, I'm now that I've said that out loud, I'm leaning into that branding that we are a feminist audio zine. Uh, so I think that's a really great movement that we're doing. Uh, all right. Back to Laura Foster and continuing to channel all the rage that results from generally being you know, a woman in modern society through reflection on the past. And that's actually basically what we have in terms of primary source documents. We have the records of the trial, which are, there's like witness testimonies and court documents. And the witness testimonies aren't like verbatim as you would think of them today. Like there's not like a stenographer doing shorthand. It's someone transcribing it and it'll reflect the biases and sort of interpretations of whoever was the person taking the notes, which it's not totally clear who that was to me. Um, if you have a better idea of who it was, definitely let me know on Twitter. I am Kansas Alps, like the states and the mountains, because I just am really on theme in terms of strange mountain-related puns and uh, interest choices. Another bit of information that we learn from the census records is that Laura's family was really not from the wealthier side of the tracks. Uh, not the tracks is really, you know, I'm not going to get into it where the development of railroads is or is not uh, at this point uh, in history. That's a whole other podcast. Uh, but Laura's family, we know from the census records, is listed as having assets of around $200, which and U.S. dollars now is around $6,000, so it's not a huge net worth to have. And that's in assets that don't have any land listed in that 1860 census. So we have all these court records, we have the census records, we have some newspaper accounts. Uh, we don't have any pictures, and that's kind of all we have other than stories and other various oral histories and songs. And even though Laura gets really taken out of the song about her own death when it hits the radio waves, but she's really at the center of the first bit of poetry that we have about this, which comes from a local a guy named Thomas Land. You can read it online and I'll link to it from the website uh, on an article from 2013 for Murder Ballad Mondays, which is delightful, uh, from Sing Out, uh, the 
a ballad of Laura Foster. I'm just gonna go ahead and read it. It's a little lengthy and I'll probably stumble a little bit because honestly it's not normal language for me at this point, but I'm gonna do it anyways and it's gonna be fun. Uh, so, a tragedy I now relate, tis of a poor Laura Foster's fate, how by a fickle lover she was hurried to eternity. On Thursday morn at early dawn, to meet her doom she hurried on, when soon she thought a bride-to-be, which filled her heart with ecstasy. Her youthful heart no sorrow knew, she fancied all mankind was true, and thus she gaily passed along, humming at times a favorite song. As Eve declined toward the west, she met her groom and his vile guest. In a forest wild, the three retreat, she looked for person there to meet. Soon night came on with darkness drear, but while poor Laura felt no fear, she thought her lover kind and true, she believed that he'd protect her too. Confidingly upon his breast, she leaned her head to take some rest. But soon poor Laura felt a smart, a deadly dagger pierced her heart. No shrieks were heard by neighbors round, who were in bed and sleeping sound. None heard those shrieks so loud and shrill, save those who did poor Laura kill. This murder done, they a her conceal, and vowed they'd never it reveal. To dig the grave, they now proceed, but in the dark, they made no speed. The dawn appeared, the grave not done. Back to their hiding place they run, and they with silence wait the night to put poor Laura out of sight. The grave was short and narrow too, but in it they poor Laura threw. They covered her with leaves and clay, then hastened home ere break of day. Since Laura left at break of day, two nights and days have passed away. The parents now, in sorrow wild, set out to search for their lost child. In copse and glens, in woods and plains, they search for her, but search in vain. With aching heart and plaintive mourns, they call for her in mournful tones. With sad forebodings of her fate, to friends her absence they relate. With many anxious friends, all anxious too, again their search they do renew. They search for her in swamps and bogs, in creeks and caves and hollow logs, in copse and glens and brambles too, but still no trace of her they view. At length upon a ridge they found some blood all mingled with the ground. The sight to all seems very clear that Laura had been murdered there. Long for her grave, they search in vain. At length they meet to search again. Where stately pines and ivies wave, t'was there they found poor Laura's grave. This grave was found, as we have seen, mid stately pines and ivies green. The coroner and jury, too, assembled this sad sight to view. They took away the leaves and clay which on her lifeless body lay. Then from the grave the body take and close examinations make. Then soon their bloody wounds they spied, t'was where a dagger pierced her side. The inquest held this lifeless maid was there into her coffin laid. 
The jury made the verdict plain. Twas that poor Laura had been slain. Some ruthless fiend had struck the blow that laid poor Laura foster low. Then in the churchyard they, her they lay, no more to rise till judgment day. Then robed in white, we trust she'll rise to meet her savior in the skies. And I managed, I think, to get through that with like minimal stumbling until pretty close to the end. So I'm feeling good about it. Not going to recut it, guys. You're just going to have to live with it. I said in the intro to the live show, uh, I have a little bit of a stutter and I'm just going to lean into it, actually. Um, not aggressively, but I'm also just not going to edit it out because it's who I am and I'm okay with it. So we're <laughs> moving forward with Laura here, or though, and we hear from this poem that is from one of her contemporaries uh if sort of you can hear someone actually singing that uh sheila clark from a release on the smithsonian folkways online also linked from that great sing out article that i will link into on the internet if you want to hear someone you know actually doing musical things with it as opposed to me just reciting because i really wanted to just talk about the substance and sometimes when there's music it's harder for me to process it all and also i'm really not that great at editing yet guys these episodes will probably get more audio advanced as we go forward <laughs> but i'm bringing up front and honest with you about it and i think that's good right but the version of Laura Foster that we get in the story, well, the poem uh, from Thomas Land is really a damsel in distress who has been lured astray and who is murdered by an unknown, well, not unknown, uh, an unnamed person in their vile guest who, if as we go further into this, we're going to identify as pointing towards Tom Dooley, uh, whose name is actually spelled Dula, D-U-L-A, but the local pronunciation is more like Dooley, and that is how the song got popularized by the Kingston Trio in the 1958, and just sort of how the song goes. So it's so what I'm going to use when I say Tom Dooley because it's just easier for me and I'm just not going to deal with it. But this is me addressing how you spell Tom Dooley versus how you say Tom Dooley. Uh, congratulations. We got into that in episode two. <laughs> but back again, as ever, to Laura, who this show is really about. <laughs> we see her cast in this really sympathetic light in the poem we don't necessarily get that sympathetic view from the trial at least not from everyone's court testimony um talk about why we need to have actually a little bit of step back and talk about where laura foster was we're talking about the appellations directly after the civil war the murder takes place in 1866 late may of 1866 as we kind of talked about and established earlier in the episode mode and this is the beginning of reconstruction a lot of people are 
coming back and recovering from the war, including Tom Dooley, who was a Confederate officer who got sick and was captured and was released after signing an oath to the Union again and came back home. Uh, and then promptly started up a series of romantic relationships with a number of women, including Laura Foster and Anne Melton. At least that's what the testimony from the trial asserts from various people, including Anne Melton's own mother, who is also a foster, which is another thing we're going to need to talk about, is that like, everyone here is weirdly intermarried, and there's a lot of weird class stuff going on. And by weird class stuff, I mean a lot of the kind of class stuff that we don't talk about a lot in terms of biases and stereotypes and media coverage and that things that are uncomfortable. Uh, like the New York Herald, when they printed a final vert, like wrap up of everything after Tom Dooley's execution, because uh, I guess, spoiler alert, Tom Dooley gets executed. Um, I think everyone knows that from listening to the song, but if somehow you overlooked the E part where uh, Tom Dooley hangs his head, uh, he dies. Uh, he gets executed. He is convicted for killing Laura Foster, and we're going to talk more about the trial in a later episode. Ode. Uh, but yeah, the New York Herald's write-up is very much sets up a economically stratified area where there's a separation between the landed farmer previously were running plantations uh, with slave labor who have had their economic situation disrupted by, oh, you know, not being allowed to enslave people anymore because we finally, as a country, stopped doing that, which I, I yeah, uh, we're continuing to deal with the fallout of as a country in terms of just a moral failing at all times. Um, but so, and you know, the, obviously the disruption of what happened to these plantation owners is literally not in any way comparable to the cultural genocide of enslaving people and taking them across the transatlantic slave trade and anyway okay that's not the point of the podcast everything's horrific i'm really sorry the new york herald sets up the difference between these wealthier planter class and the hill people who are backwards and they suggest pretty literally a free love situation um where like children don't know who their fathers are etc etc uh so on and so forth and they describe laura as frail uh this is another thing that is sort of suggested in terms of the testimony and other like books that have been written on like the, like the john foster West uh, book that I referenced earlier in this episode refers to her as someone who would have around heels, which I guess is local Appalachian slang for someone who is easily knocked over into bed. Uh, 
uh, which is not something I'd heard before I started reading about this entire thing, and I find really kind of weird, but like whatever, and kind of gross. I mean, all of it's kind of gross. <laughs> um, not the sexuality, just some of the ways that they are talked about in a lot of these documents. <laughs> Uh, but the reality of it is there is a lot of like weird scarlet lettering about Laura in part because the testimony suggests that she had syphilis and that that was a primary motivation for how she got killed. And I think it's really interesting to see that it's, it's pretty like laid out there in the court testimony, but it's really only like hinted at in a lot of the newspaper stuff. In fact, although there's no testimony to suggest that Laura is pregnant, the New York Herald things suggests that she has enceinte, which is like fancy French for pregnant. Um, and some of the other new one of the other news stories, I think, said something along the lines of. Uh, the motivation has something to do with their like criminal intimacy or something, uh, which would be like the sex out of wedlock because that's the sexual more is that dominated at this time. Uh, and I think one of the really interesting things about this is getting to talk about these sexual health topics and how they affected people in different classes is and how their behavior was viewed by outsiders. Uh, there's a really great uh, history thesis uh, that I was reading while I was researching in, in this. Uh, shout out to people who think that no one is ever going to read their uh, master's thesis in history. If you are Heather L. Miller from East Tennessee State University. I really enjoyed your honors thesis under the shadow of the awful gallows tree, the murder trials of Thomas Dooley and Ann Melton as a case study in gender and power in Reconstruction era Western or North Carolina, which I discovered while I started researching in this after starting this podcast because that's how DIY we are here now. We're doing the research as we're going, which I think is a fun community experience for us all. So feel free to send me tips and things that I haven't mentioned here or linked to before because I want to read more weird shit about this because it's fun for me. Uh, if you'll pardon my French. Uh, I don't know. I don't have to apologize for saying shit. Like, that's not cursing. Okay. Anyways, Heather, great job. This is like an A-plus thesis. I really enjoyed reading it. Um, but one of the things that Heather talks about extensively is the value of doing sort of like weird history and micro histories and that it's valuable to look at crimes and true crime specifically uh, to see out an intimate view of type and parts of society that otherwise aren't always cataloged and analyzed and recorded. Uh, and we're going to start next week with an episode that is extensively about talking about syphilis. <laughs> I'll talk to you Monday. 
Also, sorry this came out on Tuesday night instead of Monday night. I just, my cat has a bunch of teeth pulled over the weekend. Well, like actually on Friday and I was like nursing him and like making sure he wasn't falling down the stairs. Like literally he was on opioids and he, they were worried about him falling down the stairs. He's a delight. Um, this one's fax machine. There's also Rolodex. Rolodex is the trash cat. He eats candy wrappers all the time. It's a big problem. Uh, but anyways, this is a long way of saying that because this is a creative hobby endeavor, I'm allowed to cut myself a little bit of slack and I decided it was okay if it, this went up on Tuesday night instead of Monday night, but I am generally aiming for Monday mornings actually, so you can probably more realistically expect them Monday night. I am thinking that I will probably set up an email list, probably on Substack. Um, gonna probably talk to people and ask questions about that on the internet later tonight uh, after I post this so I get people's ideas. Um, but yeah, come back here um, to this, the end of the podcast, asked for uh, more birthday shout outs, late birthday A2 Rich Seymour. I'll be seeing you on Friday at rat Shit. Um, I'm gonna... Ugh. I'll believe that where we're going for your birthday. All right, bye. Uh, this is Andrea Peterson uh, from Murder, She Sang, and this has been a plain great production. And you know, the, obviously the disruption of what happened to these plantation owners is literally not in any way comparable to the cultural genocide of enslaving people and taking them across the transatlantic slave trade and anyway okay that's not the point of the podcast everything's horrific i'm really sorry uh